Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Welcome into the Tech Ed Podcast. I am your host, Matt Kirkner. This week, we are going to dive into some somewhat heady issues. We're going to talk about issues like addiction. We're going to talk about mental health, but we are going to do it as one would expect here on the Tech Ed Podcast with a bent toward data science and data analytics and talk about how data is changing the way that organizations across the United States, around the globe, are administering healthcare. It's going to be a fascinating discussion with Dr. Brian Kay. Brian is the Chief of Staff for Rogers Behavioral Health, an organization that we are going to learn all about today. Absolutely fascinating. But before we do that, let me, Brian, first welcome you to the Tech Ed Podcast. Matt, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to discussing the intersects between data, data science, behavioral health, how we're using it in really the health informatics field. So thank you. Our listeners are in for a really fascinating episode. You know, one of the things initially, Brian, and you and I met, it's probably been three or four months ago, uh, sitting on a panel at uh, a technical college that was looking at how AI can be applied and taught at the technical and community college level. I was fascinated right out of the blocks by your educational background. So you have a translational bioinformatics doctorate. I had to read that carefully. Tell us about that and tell us about what biomedical and health informatics, that field of study is all about. It's a very interesting degree, and it's a little bit newer out there in the field. Uh, So when I graduated, I was the only one in my graduating class that had a doctorate in bioinformatics. So it's still growing. Uh, I went to University of Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee, and the program is actually based out of the School of Engineering there. So it's really a mashup between health sciences, computer science, mathematics, Uh, And just more of the computational side of things. The translational piece in bioinformatics is how are we taking that data, that findings and insight that we find in it, and then translating it back into care. So it's really a good pairing between looking at data, generating insight from data, and then bringing it back to the point of care. Uh, These programs are growing across the country. UWM, or University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, is the oldest bioinformatics program in the U.S., right in our backyard, and it provided a great curriculum uh, for it as well, too. Fascinating. I didn't recognize that UWM was one of the first, or it sounds like the first uh, program that that had, that offered that uh, level of study. How how do you get interested in that? How did you even find out that this was something that you could get into? Yeah, so I did my undergrad at Marquette in psychology. And when I was going through undergrad, psychology actually has a ton of statistics classes. And then not formally, but how do you use data uh, to disinform your decision making? I always got very interested in the data analysis side of things. And then as I was growing my career and I provided patient care right after undergrad, I saw all these different data elements that were in our medical record that's like, man, If we were able to put these things together, we could generate more insights and help more patients. So kind of came across the health informatics field in general, found that that's what it does uh, in, in, for the most part, ended up getting my master's in health informatics and then just growing it there uh, to get my doctorate. But, you know, it really started with that core of how do we become curious with the data that we collect in healthcare, generate insights from that data, 
uh, and then use it to inform the field broadly. That's an interesting word you use, the word curious, because that's really when we think about data science, it's really about following curiosity. It's really about you know coming up with a thesis, coming up with a what could be or what do we want to learn, what do we want to know, and then using, in some cases, really, really complex aspects of data to be able to, to drive to those solutions. To your point, having you know, having those insights and then being able to use them in this case to improve patient care. We're going to get into that in a little bit more detail. And I'm really going to, I'm really fascinated and excited to have that conversation with you, Brian. Before we get into that, the other thing I'm actually curious about is your career pathway itself. So when you and I were talking not too long ago, you didn't start out on the provider side of healthcare, right? You you worked for uh, for GE. Let's start out by just talking about that experience, and then I've got a couple follow-up questions for you. Yeah, so when I was with GE, I actually worked in staffing models. So if you look at the healthcare industry in general, 50% of the costs in healthcare is labor, salary, and benefits. So it's so important to have the right staffing for the right demand on there. At the point when I was working with GE, we built systems of understanding and predicting hospital census or how many patients are in the hospital at any given time so we could better predict uh, staffing models and staffing demand. So understanding and really giving the hospital the tools to help pair their staff with the patients at the right time. So that's where I started getting my feet wet really with the data science side of things. So I worked formally as a business analyst, uh, but actually did some coding uh, and working with our our developers uh, and our data scientists at GE to start looking at data from all of these different systems, not only from the medical record, uh, from like some different real-time location services, so seeing how people are flowing through the health system, uh, and then from staffing and scheduling and time attendance solutions of building these comprehensive models of understanding what that hospital is going to look like on a daily basis so we could staff it. The other piece that we worked on over there were acuity systems. So how do we understand what are the needs that the patients have for a daily basis and then aligning staffing to those patient needs? So when we come into the hospital, not everybody's created equal, right? So some people might need more care from a nurse or some might need less. So there's systems out there that help quantify that so we get the right amount of people for the unit at the right time. So I formally started my career in that space, really working with data kind of down and dirty, uh, being able to travel to multiple different hospitals, see how care was delivered, and then started entering the behavioral health space. You know, you think about all the challenges we have, certainly in in this country and and around the globe with the cost of healthcare and trying to figure out how we can get people the best possible care without, you know, without blowing budgets up and and continuing to be mindful that everything has a cost. And it really sounds like you were using the whole data science aspect of what you were doing to to help hospitals provide the highest level of care and and caregivers provide the highest level of care at the lowest possible cost through managing um, and, and monitoring to your point, one of their most expensive resources, which is the labor or the people actually working in healthcare, kind of sticking on this General Electric, this GE discussion point. You know, if, when I think about GE and I, you know, I studied them extensively in the Jack Welch days, everybody in business did, and and this whole aspect of lean manufacturing, Six Sigma driving variation out of process was so important. Does the fact that you worked at GE and had that experience influence how you look at healthcare? And is that something that's as important to healthcare as it is in manufacturing? Absolutely. And a phenomenal question too. I think one of the 
the biggest issues that is in healthcare today is not providing reliable, consistent outcomes. There is so much variability that is inherent in the system. Uh, and, you know, lean and lean manufacturing tools are excellent methods and ways to start looking at that variability and reducing it down. So, you know, the lens that I learned at GE was that lean side of things. How do we do even basic process mapping, gap analysis, utilizing A3 thinking mm -hmm. of really framing up and understanding what the root cause of the problem is. We've transferred a lot of that work actually over to Rogers right now. So we run close to 70 Lean Kaizen events a year within our system. Again, to your point, all driving out variability within our processes. Not only does driving out variability increase the prob probability that the patient's going to get that predictable, repeatable outcome, but it allows us to spot variation in our processes. So when we have issues that come up with us, it becomes really, really easy to know where are you targeting that issue and not wasting resources to be able to do so. One of the reasons this conversation is so so fascinating to me, Brian, is our listeners, many of our listeners know I spent probably 10 years evangelizing for Kaizen and continuous improvement in manufacturing, primarily as it related to the coatings process, powder coating, metal finishing, and so on. Uh, and one of the things that I always talked about when I was introducing the topic was, look, we think of Kaizen in manufacturing. We think of Kaizen, we think continuous improvement. 5S, Six Sigma, we think of those as manufacturing methodologies. And the truth of the matter is that they have applications in every single corner of our economy. And we would talk about that all the time, whether it was healthcare, fast food, hospitality, office processes. I mean, any of these things, you can use lean tools to improve process. And, and you're just, you're evangelizing for exactly what we were talking about back then, which is this can be used anywhere. And if we think about a healthcare environment at Rogers Behavioral Health and having 70 continuous improvement events, 70 Kaizen events in a 12-month period of time in healthcare, that absolutely fascinates me. Before we go any deeper on that, I want to give you the opportunity, Brian, to familiarize our listeners with Rogers Behavioral Health. Tell them a little bit about what they should know about your organization. Rogers Behavioral Health is a 116-year org organization that's been located here in Wisconsin, uh, but more recently have been spreading out to multiple different states around the United States. Rogers Behavioral Health, we are the largest non-for-profit, non-affiliated behavioral health organization in the U.S. now, and we've got six major subspecialties. So we work with patients who have eating disorders, mood and depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, and emotional dysregulation. So we're really a specialty provider in many cases, uh, but we provide very high-quality evidence-based care. We see close to 30,000 individual patients who come through our system every year uh, across the United States in four distinct levels of care, all the way from inpatient down to partial hospitalization. Uh, so the system is continually growing, trying to increase our access uh, for people who need high-quality behavioral health care. When you think about 30,000 people, I mean, that's the size of a small city, and those are the people that, that you're treating and supporting every single year, year in and year out, and doing it is, I, I like the term evidence-based, right? And, and tell me a little bit about what you mean by evidence-based. Evidence-based, all the treatment that we do at Rogers is rooted into peer-reviewed journals. So understanding what is the best quality care for our patient populations. And then our unique bend on it is we protocolize and manualize all of our treatment on there while keeping the individual aspect on it. So 
For us, I mentioned and alluded to a little bit earlier that predictable, repeatable outcomes are key. Mm -hmm. So by protocolizing, manualizing, we could see our processes, see how care is being delivered, and then get a repeatable outcome for our patients who are coming through. So when you were studying at Marquette University, my alma mater, by the way, having a phenomenal basketball year, at least oh, as yeah. we're recording this, uh, <laughs> recording this episode, and of course I'm rubbing that into our uh, Wisconsin Badger producer, Melissa Martin, <laughs> who's sitting on the other side of the, of the window, uh, I have to remind her of that, that, uh, that, that Marquette's having a phenomenal basketball year. When you were at Marquette, when you were at UWM, Brian, did you see yourself in the role of like chief of staff at, at Rogers? No way. Uh, I, you know, when I went through when I went through undergrad, I just was really interested in data and psychology. Kind of just opened up that door, and I've just been following data all down my career, from the days at GE, from the days of providing clinical care, and then while I was providing clinical care, I also started working. At that time, was our very kind of under the radar research group. So. The other thing that Rogers has a very unique piece is we've got a large data set of called patient-reported outcome measures. Patient-reported outcome measures are those types of things when you go to the doctor, they ask, how's your depression in a systematic way? Every patient that comes through our doors gets a battery of assessments at admission, one to two weeks through their treatment, and then at discharge. We store all that data off at the item level, and then we've got the ability to analyze it and generate different insights. So as it stands today, we collect about a million of those patient-reported outcome measures every year. Uh, we've got billions of data points, and what it's doing is it really started building a whole standalone research center. So now we've got, I believe, close to 20 FTEs that are solely dedicated on behavioral health research, looking at these patient-reported outcome measures. We just opened a biobank, so we're going to be number four biobank in the world. And biobank is we are taking saliva samples, and with those saliva samples, we are looking at the underlying genetics, whole exome sequencing, so looking at the protein synthesis, and trying to pair that up with what we see with our treatment. So understanding not only genetic components, but how that phenotypical or that expression plays out in our patients and gathering more insights uh, in the behavioral health field. So I'm tangential, but going, yeah, a, great way. going <laughs> and a little bit going back to your right. question, we've always, in my career, I've just always been following the data and like, how does that data continue to grow? How do we generate more insights out of it and then translate it back into, be, uh, into better care? And more currently in my role as a chief of staff, you know, a lot of that is focused on what is going to be the, the strategy of the organization. So how are we integrating all these different data points positioning Rogers uh, to be not only, you know, the best at providing care, but also generating insights in the field. When you and I were sitting on that panel around artificial intelligence not long ago, you, I, I'll admit I saw your eyes light up a little bit when I told the story of, and our listeners have heard this a number of times, but uh, Fanuc is a great robotics company, a great example of using data. They have a, a system called ZDT Zero Downtime, where they're taking all kinds of information from robots. So, so force, disturbances, temperature, moisture, all of this information, loading it up to a data collector, sending it to the cloud, analyzing it, and those robots can now predict their own future failure and order their own replacement parts before the failure happens. I don't want to dehumanize the work that you're doing at all, but it's really incredible how the correlations between 
what you're doing on the healthcare side and what Fanuc is doing with the robot, really just having this huge sea of data and finding a way to use that to whether it's discern what a specific issue might be or to discern a a plan for care. I mean, right. is it, am I getting that right? Are you kind of doing the same you're thing? You're getting it very similar. And what we're trying to do is leverage all the data that has come through our system in understanding what is going to be the best treatment for you at the right time. So right now we've got a couple of studies that are going on uh, applying deep learning algorithms to patient care data to predict on day one if that patient's going to respond to treatment or not. So if you look at one of our treatment levels, it's called residential. So the residential level of care is where patients come in. They're typically there between 45 and 60 days. So considerable investment of time. Uh, 80% of the patients actually travel across the country to come to Oconomowoc, Wisconsin to seek care. So if we could provide and run a few of these algorithms on day one, understand how they're going to respond to treatment, and if they're not going to respond to treatment, start aligning different interventions so they do respond, that's exactly what we're trying to do to get at. The bend that we've really taken with data science and analytics at Rogers, we're not here to say we're going to build the most accurate algorithm out there that does not have any tangible output. We want to build algorithms that are, of course, accurate, but also usable for our clinicians so they could use that insight and translate that back to better care for our patients. And when you think about the cost of a, a hospital bed versus the cost of somebody being treated residentially, I mean, that's that's night and day, right, in terms of the, the cost of that. So now you're you're doing uh, t- taking tremendous effort to help drive the cost out of healthcare and make right. that healthcare more efficient because when you do begin treating that individual, the odds that the specific treatment is going to result in the outcomes that you're looking for are, are that much higher. You're exactly right. And another application, like what what you're saying, a few years ago, we actually modeled different treatment strategies and which one is going to be the best cost over the course of the patient's lifetime. So for obsessive compulsive disorder, we compared different treatment strategies that we have as compared to the literature. What was the overall cost of those treatment strategies? simulated it over that patient population over the course of an individual's lifetime, and then said, you know what, for this disorder at this severity, this is going to be the best bang for your buck. But it was all dependent on having the right data on there. And I think that's where we're so uniquely positioned with Rogers is we've collected so much of this information. We've started to build the infrastructure around gathering the insights with that information. And now it's going to be the ability of how do we translate that back to care in the broader field. Got it. Question out of curiosity, you know, with with all the talk about HIPAA and confidentiality and protecting information, how does that play into your, your strategy in terms of you've got tremendous amounts of data that most people would consider very confidential. You're using it for, for certainly for greater good, but how does that confidentiality part of it play in? Yeah, so a lot of it was just building our methods from the get-go. So for us, we've got high security with our databases, everything along those lines. But also we keep our data analytics really uh, pared down to one team who has special training of working with that data. And then also we have an institutional review board that Rogers has. So if there are any studies that require PHI or whatnot, PHI is uh, protected health information, that goes through our institutional review board so we can ensure that the individual who's looking at that has the right credentials, data protections, everything along those lines so we could stay in accordance with HIPAA uh, and all the applicable laws. 
Got it. And speaking of the right credentials, you certainly have the right credentials for the role of chief of staff uh, at Rogers Behavioral Health. One of the things we just love exploring on um, on the Tech Ed podcast is people's careers, what they do. Obviously, we've got a lot of young people, a lot of students that listen in. Um, you know, a lot of folks probably aren't particularly familiar with what the chief of staff at, at an organization like Rogers does. So talk a little bit about, you know, what does your day look like? You know, who are your direct reports? Who do you report to in the organization? Help us understand that. So my reporting structure, I uh, report directly to our president and CEO, Dr. John Boyd. Uh, and with that reporting structure, it gives me the opportunity of disunderstanding how are we framing the organization from a strategy standpoint, but also working with our different operators, medical staff, uh, clinical leaders of making sure that they have alignment to that strategy and where we're going. So from a day-to-day I'm doing a lot of things in a really, really good way. So some of it is a little bit of pinch of what is the data that we're gathering to make this next decision? How do we analyze that data? How do we more importantly translate it and say, is this a good data source that we want to make decisions off of? Then working with like our chief medical officer, our chief clinical officer, our chief operating officer on how do we put that together and then start aligning that to the overall organizational strategy. So it's a very interesting role because there's definitely some of that hard technical skills. Like I still code statistically on a day-to-day basis. So I use like our programming in my workflow, Power BI, but also it's a whole piece of soft skills and then integrating some of that lean component from a facilitation side of saying, how do we start pulling this together to make the decisions where we want to go? Uh, so it's broad in that sense. Uh, I'm over the entire system nationally, uh, but it it definitely keeps me busy and, and keeps me uh, keeps me intrigued on a day to day basis. I was in Las Vegas, Nevada, right before Christmas time, and interviewing a gentleman by the name of Alan Satomer, former California Teacher of the Year. He owns a company now called Mastery Coding, and his whole focus, he says, is turning gamers into makers. So taking these young people that love gaming, get them excited about programming, get them excited about coding. And I just want to note that you know, in your your answer there, Brian, you reference the fact that even today in, in the role of chief of staff, right? So you've got all these responsibilities and all these individuals that you've got to make sure are, are, are being productive, are, are aligning to your organization's mission, all these other great things. You still take time to, to do your coding and programming, even in the role of chief of staff. That's going to be music to, to Alan's ears. And it's really a message, I think, to anybody considering data science as a career pathway, considering coding, considering programming, considering computer science, that you're not necessarily going to sit at a computer 10 hours a day for the rest of your life, you know, debugging code or, or creating code. You can integrate that into the rest of your, your career. Absolutely. And I think it's critical. I mean, you and I both know data could be so easily misinterpreted. If you're not getting your hands dirty with the data and understanding how does it play out in workflow? How does it look from the back end? Having that domain knowledge and context, you can make some bad decisions. So for me personally, that tie of continuing to do it allows me to ensure that I'm looking at it the right way and making the, the best possible decisions. Yeah, getting your hands dirty in manufacturing, we called that going to the Gemba, right? Going to where the action is, getting out there and you know, not just sitting in front of a computer or sitting in front of data or financial statements, but go out to where things actually happen. Uh, you know, in your case, in the in the field of healthcare, in my case, in the field of manufacturing. But but another really really 
solid lesson. Dr. Brian Kay is our guest today on the Tech Ed Podcast talking about certainly Roger's behavioral health. We're talking about his role of chief of staff. Um, we're talking about mental health, and, and I have a question for you, Brian, probably forever, but certainly for a long, long time. I think in some cases people have attached a, a stigma to mental health issues. Do you feel like we're getting better on that front? Is that changing a little bit? The tides are changing with it for the better. I think the pandemic was one of these occasions where it brought mental health to the forefront of everybody. We all collectively experienced so much isolation, uh, a lot of introspective periods with ourselves, and we've seen a lot of people who required treatment afterwards. It's nice to start seeing, you know, mental health is becoming more prominent in the media. You're seeing sports uh, and athletes coming out and saying, it's okay, this is a bigger piece. Uh, so the stigma is starting to reduce, but we've got a long way to go. And part of that stigma reduction too is evident because we're seeing more treatment options out there for people today. Uh, virtual care is becoming more and more uh, prominent and popular. You're seeing some of the app-based therapies on, on it. So we're going in the right direction. We still have more to go too. Absolutely. Virtual care, app-based um, solutions, obviously all of these leveraging data, at least in part, to provide a high quality of mental health care. When we think about that data, and you've given some great examples already, Brian, are there like one or two like marquee, like blow your mind examples of how you're leveraging data at Rogers that our, our audience would be fascinated by? I think the treatment response data is very interesting uh, that I spoke about a little bit earlier. But the other piece of data and algorithms that we're using is how are we predicting suicide risk in individuals? Mm -hmm. Suicide risk is very, very difficult thing to predict. Right now, there's an assessment called the Columbia Suicide Severity Rating Scale, which is absolutely the gold standard assessment for suicide risk. Uh, that's where a clinician will sit down with you, ask a series of structured questions, utilize their clinical knowledge, utilize some different parameters within that assessment, and then arrive at an overall risk. Are you at high risk, medium risk, or low risk of suicide? Mm -hmm. So then they've got the ability of saying, you know what, how can we structure interventions to reduce that overall risk? What's interesting, and we're working with uh, a couple of different companies on this, is how do we start leveraging data out of the medical record mm -hmm. and more behavioral based to get a more accurate prediction of that suicide risk? One of the factors that we've started seeing more and more than anything is how sleep plays into that. Mm -hmm. When we look at people who have had uh, unfortunate completed suicides or leveraged data from other organizations with that, sleep is one of those number one predictors, or I wouldn't say number one, one of the high predictors of potential completed suicide. So we've integrated sleep tracking and monitoring in our workflows. We actually have devices that are on our patients. Uh, we're not collecting sleep yet. They're more from a safety standpoint, uh, but we're looking at how do we extract some of those pieces and really start understanding what is the suicide risk for that individual so we could better safety plan and things along those lines. I think devices are going to be kind of the, the new place and it's going to open up so many different insights that we've never had before with behavioral health. Another example of devices, I don't have the study off the top of my head, but a few years ago, they actually found that heart rate variability is an excellent predictor of PTSD exacerbation. Oh. So basically, if your heart rate gets to a certain piece, 
it is very good at saying, are you going to have a symptom exacerbation? So imagine if an individual is suffering with PTSD, we've got the ability to say, hey, you might have symptom exacerbation in a couple hours. How are they going to modify their day or how are they going to utilize the skills that they learn into treatment to reduce down those other pieces? Fascinating. Going back to the sleep example. So tell me what about the sleep is a predictor of, of somebody at risk of suicide? The actual origins of it, we're still trying to understand. It's one of those signals that we see so much out there. We're working with a couple of researchers on the West Coast to actually dive into that a little bit more. But one of our, uh, one of my colleagues always says that, you know, if you are prolonging nights of restless sleep, he feels that, you know, that could be a way of just, you're not thinking correctly or you do things more impulsively that you might not do otherwise. But that's been one of those consistent signals that we've seen out there. There's other factors that we found in our models that that are more, quote, traditional. So like a recent loss or bereavement, uh, weight loss. So what we're actually doing is putting all those different factors into a weighted model Mm -hmm. and actually saying for clinicians, based on these pieces, we think that this individual might be on low, medium, or high risk. Uh, And then it's actually recalculating in the medical record every three minutes. So we've got that uh, ability to have it more in more near real time. It's got to make you feel so good to know that you're taking you know, all the expertise that you have now, just not just on the computer science and coding side, the psychology side, the data and artificial intelligence side, and really creating positive outcomes for more and more people sounds incredibly rewarding. That's like the best part of, of my day. Like I, I sit here and, you know, it's kind of an interesting moment of like, we're here discussing bioinformatics and behavioral right. health. And it's like, for me, the impact and the scale is so interesting of how can we use this data to make better decisions to in turn improve people's lives. And like, for me, what more can you ask for in a career? Like that directly what you're doing has the impact on a broad group of people. It's amazing. Yeah, it makes makes coming to work worth it, right? Absolutely. You mentioned not just the data, but the the smart devices and smart sensors. You know, we uh, again spending most of my time in the manufacturing world. One of the observations that we had a number of years ago, about two or three years ago, and I actually worked with a technical college here in in Wisconsin, um, Western Technical College, to uh, put together basically an IIoT technician degree program. And the whole logic behind this is that we can take, you know, there's there's this continuum in just about every single market space, which starts with, um, you know, gathering data at its source. So it starts with some base technology, and then smart sensors and smart devices being loaded up to some version of a control system, going to some version of a enterprise level MRP, ERP system, um, you know, then going going to the cloud, then being analyzed, and then kind of coming up with some generalizations or some conclusions that are drawn from that data. And that that continuum repeats itself over and over and over again in every market space. So it's just, it's interesting to me as we think about that continuum in manufacturing, a smart sensor maybe measuring uh, the quality of a production part, sending that to a uh, PLC or to a data collector or to an ERP system, you've kind of got the same continuum in, in healthcare. And I'd be interested, Brian, in hearing your insights. You mentioned a couple smart devices at all and in and saying that this is going to be transformative. What are some examples of other devices that you're seeing put to work? We talked about sleep. We talked about heart rate monitoring. And, and what, do you, what are some other examples? And then how do you think those are going to manifest themselves in healthcare? Yeah, one that comes to mind directly, it's an amazing company. It's called Observe Smart. So Observe Smart is really trying to 
figure out the use case of patient safety on behavioral health units. So when someone's on a locked inpatient unit, very acute needs, typically safety needs. So we have staff that go around and they round on that patient uh, at different intervals. So with those different intervals, we can ensure that they're safe. What Observe Smart is doing is utilizing Bluetooth low energy and having wristbands that look like an Apple Watch on uh, a patient. So then when the staff get close to proximity, we could ensure that they are rounding in a right fashion. They're getting close to the patient, they're doing it on time, ensuring that that process is working so we can reduce variability with it. But also, uh, you know, it gives us the ability to collect some of that data uh, in understanding, you know, different movement fashions and things along those lines. So that's been one really neat application of just utilizing Bluetooth low energy to fix a very common and high risk process that's out there in the field. The other piece in when I was hearing you talk about devices mm -hmm. Our medical record is just a collector of so much different information. That is just our major aggregator in there. On a daily basis, you've got you know, your docs who are charting in it. You've got nurses who are charting in it. You've got techs who are charting in it. Vitals machines are integrating in it. So it becomes this huge repository of kind of everything that's going on, not only with the patient, but what's going on in the system as well, too. So you could leverage so many different data points in that uh, of bringing that forward in that way. Leveraging data in, in healthcare, you know, I had an experience not too long ago with uh two relatives who were kind of suffering from the same symptoms, both being treated by medical professionals and those medical professionals not really connecting on, okay, I've got two people with the same symptoms that have the, you know, they're living in the same house in this case, uh, and not even talking to each other, which just kind of fascinated me. And in the, in the end, they both got great care, but it was just, you know, living in the world of manufacturing where you try to drive everything back to root cause and ask your five whys and 8D corrective actions and, and all these other tools that we have to figure out what's actually going on. I was shocked that that wasn't taking place in this particular situation. What is the attitude of the healthcare community toward the use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, data, sharing data among institutions to try and drive toward the best possible care? Tell me about that. It's a great question, and it's an evolving question, I would say. Even a few years ago, I think the attitudes were a lot more conservative. Uh, unfortunately, when you look at AI, a lot of people just aren't trained in that space. And you look at RNs, uh, medical schools, you know, they don't have AI classes of how do you understand and evaluate what is a good algorithm? A lot of people just perceive it as a black box. And if you're a provider and trying to provide the best care for our patients, relying on a black box becomes very, very difficult, and rightfully so. So there's been a lot of education efforts over, I would say, the last few years of really getting to how do we start peeling off that black box as much as possible? I believe it was out of Duke. There was a great... Uh, uh, initiative of adding like nutritional labels for all decision support algorithms where it didn't get down to like, here are the exact parameters of the models, but it said, you know what, we use a classification algorithm and here are the top exposed features. So it started demystifying that black box a little bit and they actually found that providers were more comfortable with it. So you're starting to see the field 
just inching towards a little bit more comfortableness with algorithms. But I believe, and this is just my own opinion, the use of decision support algorithms and data in healthcare is going to be key in the future. You think of all the information that I alluded to being collected in that medical record at any given time. One person cannot process that and make the best decision. How do you leverage the use of algorithms to be a tool, not, you know, this is what you should do, but in accordance with clinical judgment in clinical decision making to make the best possible decision and outcome for the patient? It's really a great argument for teaching, you know, any of these methodologies. So you mentioned, you know, classification algorithms or classification learning for, you know, the sake of our uh, our audience. That would be like an autonomous car noticing that a yield sign was different from a stop sign or that a green light might be different from a, a red light and reacting to that. And, and, and that's that's a version of classification learning. You know, we've got reinforcement learning. We have supervised learning. We have unsupervised learning. All these different categories of machine learning underneath the broader category of our, our artificial intelligence. What occurred to me as you were saying that is just the incredible importance of driving understanding and learning about artificial intelligence and machine learning into every element of education. And and you're right, it can be scary. I mean, as yes. we're recording this this week, I think everybody has heard the story about ChatGPT saying it wants to be human. I'm sure did, yep. did you see that <laughs> in, within the last 24 hours? I think everybody saw that, which is a little bit scary. And certainly any new technology that we don't understand, um, it can be scary. And, and then I think the other point that you've already touched on is um, you know, just because somebody comes up with an algorithm doesn't mean that that's a good algorithm. Doesn't mean that it works. Doesn't mean that its purpose is something that you know that is that it should be or that uh, you know that is um, that is ethical or moral. So really driving that back into education and helping every le- and literally as, as early as middle school and maybe even elementary school. Here's what an algorithm is. Here's how math plays into the application. Here's what artificial intelligence and machine learning are. We can't start soon enough. Do you agree? Oh, you're exactly right. And I don't think in anybody, I don't think myself or anybody should advocate that our providers need to be experts with machine learning and know how to code it and know how to do your hyperparameter tuning, but they should be understanding how does a machine learning algorithm work? What are the things that go into it? How does general training and uh, evaluation of the models work? So they feel confident in utilizing it in that patient care. I agree a hundred percent. Like that should be core curriculum in everything that we do. I mean, AI is not going anywhere. And I think the more that we just broadly educate people in that piece, the more that's going to demystify it and the more that people are going to be confident in evaluating, is it a good decision that I should act off of? One of the mantras I live by is I don't need to know everything about something in order to be able to use it. And, you know, I I use Excel for everything. I don't know what goes on behind the scenes in Excel. You know, I don't understand how the software works. I just know that if I plug the data in that I can get the output that I want. I kind of look at artificial intelligence the same way. I wrote an article for Gardner Business Media a few months ago kind of walking through just various elements and terms within artificial intelligence that said, you know, at least know this stuff if you don't need to know all of it. And I think if people approach it from that standpoint, you're right. You don't need to necessarily know how to code, know how to program, know, you know, how to know, you know, be able to provide a real deep explanation of what deep learning is in order to leverage artificial intelligence in the work that you do. Right. Exactly. It's, uh, it may be a less or more, less is more better mantra with this. Yeah. Exactly, absolutely. So let's touch on the whole psychology. One of the things we love, we talked about your work as the, uh, you know, as the chief of staff. We talked a little bit about. You said you were always fascinated by by data science and and by data as you were growing up. 
you know, what led you? Are there a couple of things that led you to study psychology and later data science? What were the influencers while you were in middle school and high school that led you on the path that you went on? Oh, that's a really interesting question. So uh, I'm very fortunate as a kid. So my father was actually uh, a pilot for American Airlines for 35 years. So I had the ability to travel all over the world. Nice. So like sitting where I am today, and this is such a wild statement, I've been to like 90 different countries wow. around the world. So seeing that worldview mm -hmm. just allowed me to see how different cultures may, were in there. Being on the aviation bend, Think of all the data that's collected in For airplanes. Sure. Yeah. I was exposed to that in an early age. And when I started going into uh, undergrad and in Marquette, I think I bounced around like biology, chemistry, anthropology. And then there was something that kind of clicked with psychology that here's a field that it's ripe for utilizing data in moving things forward. So I had this interest to data. I had kind of a worldview of seeing how different cultures played out, how people look at behaviors in different ways, knowing that aviation was very, very methodical, process-oriented, high reliability, all that just kind of like informally started congealing around psychology and behavioral health. And it was very interesting to me, and I just kind of spiraled it right from there. Got it. So um, you mentioned 90 different countries that you you visited, something like that. What's the most obscure one that you can think of where people would be like, wow, I didn't even know that? Oh, was obscure one. Uh, so I lived in Tasmania, which is part of Australia, of course, but it was at Island State South. So I was there for a bit, a bit which was very, very cool. Uh, South Africa is a great place. I was in Zululand with South Africa. Uh, so I believe Swaziland is a... a actually different countries. So that might be the most unique one that I was in. Fantastic. We've had a, just a fascinating conversation with, with Dr. Brian Kay, the Chief of Staff for Rogers Behavioral Health. I do have one last question for you, Brian, and it really speaks to the students that are listening and maybe parents that are trying to influence their their uh, sons or daughters in, in terms of what their career pathways might be. As you think through a student who's really, really interested in data science and kind of has that same bent that you did, and, and let's say that they're working their way through high school, freshman, sophomore year, what what types of courses should they have on their, on their mind? What fields of study? Um, and then what are maybe some of the challenges to expect as they work their way through that data science pathway? Yeah, it's a great question. So from a coursework and a curriculum standpoint, I think we hit on just a basic machine learning and AI course, I think is absolutely imperative. On that similar uh, route, I think statistical programming or some sort of programming, if that's a Python course, like just to start understanding how how things are structured in the back end, a database course, uh, and understanding how data is structured relationally, I think is extremely important. And then on the other side of things, it's some of the soft pieces. I'm a huge advocate for lean. I love hearing through the course of the conversation, you're saying five whys, right. A3 thinking, you know, these are things that I utilize in my daily vernacular. I think any exposure to just problem solving methodologies like lean is huge. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that we see so much in healthcare is part of the barrier is how you're framing up the problem and doing it in the right way. Sure. So having just that baseline knowledge is absolutely imperative with it. And then I think as people are growing and understanding uh, where they want to go and if they want to be in that data science uh, place of things, really finding passion in a sliver of the industry that you want to be in. Mm -hmm. I think for me, my curiosity comes in from the behavioral health side more than anything. And I love 
pulling in the data piece of how do we just learn more from behavioral health. Mm -hmm. And I think people finding what that domain is, is going to give you a lot of joy in your work and keep that curiosity on there. I just believe, you know, if you're not curious in the things that you do, it could get really boring. Uh, so I would say my advice would be take some, you know, just baseline courses, as I mentioned, but also start exploring and be curious of what are those domains that really fascinate you down to the core? Uh, because then when you pair that technical side with that, that's where you're going you're gonna to find the happiness in your career. I think there was a couple things that really, really kind of piqued my interest as you went through that that discussion, Brian. You know, the idea of having a broad understanding of things like, you know, statistics and, and certainly data and understanding programming, understanding artificial intelligence and, and machine learning, but then maybe choosing that sliver that really, really interests you. And I, I think that's frankly one of the most beautiful parts of this whole field of data science is that you can you, you don't really have to specialize until much further down the road. There's so many areas where you can put put data analytics and data science to work in so many different markets, but then focusing in on what is that that you're really, really interested in? What are you going to be curious about? What are you going to be excited about? And, the, and then spending time as a as a student, as a young person, exploring what that interest is as well. Because also as data scientists, at the end of the day, we're translators. It's how are we taking all of these different things that may seem like they're not related or they don't have patterns in building that story around it that's rooted in data. And when you got something that you're very interested in, that story starts coming to life, and then you've got the ability to work with people in a different way and get their mind to shift in different ways in translating all these different things. So I just, I mean, that's my my own lens on it, but I think it's just so important to continue to find something that makes you curious and then applying the technical skills to that. So another great word is data scientists are translators. You've translated so much for us today, Brian. We've translated the world of mental health, uh, certainly all the great work you're doing at, at Rogers for the benefit of so many people, 30,000 people a year whose lives you're changing. is just incredible. Translating what is the chief of staff and what does that role entail and what and what do you do? And then, especially for me, the, the interesting aspect of translating all of this vast amounts of data that we have available in healthcare and how do we use that to provide the best possible care for the highest number of individuals. So really appreciate you coming on today. It's been a fascinating conversation for me. You're a fascinating individual. I knew right away when we met each other that uh, there was so much going on inside that head that we would love to share with our listeners on the Tech Ed Podcast. So thank you so much for taking some time for us. And thank you so much for inviting me and allowing me to share the story, not only with Rogers, but just uh, health and bioinformatics in general. It's it's been so fun and neat to hear how your manufacturing experience is actually very similar of some of the things that we're doing in that uh, at Rogers. So thank you again for the time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.